Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. How is everybody doing today? Hello, this is Tom. Doing well. How is everyone? Deacon Dennis here. Glad to see you guys. Today, we are privileged to have with us Dr. Julie leininger Piscior, who is a professor of history emeritus at Manhattan College and is the author of four books, including the prize-winning LBJ and Mexican-Americans, The Paradox of Power. She also edited the best-selling Moyers on America, a journalist and his times by Bill Moyers. Her latest book was published by Paulus Press. Yay, Paulus Press. (laughs) Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, and The Greatest Commandment, Radical Love in Times of Crisis. That book won the 2021 prize in the history category from the Association of Catholic Publishers slash Catholic Media Association. Dr. Piscior is a historical consultant for PBS documentaries and regularly quoted in the media, and she has a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. So, Dennis and Tom, I don't think we can get anything by her on this, okay? She's no, quali- indeed, pretty no. qualified. Uh, welcome, Dr. Uh, Pisces. Yes, indeed. It's nice to have you here today. Come down to our level. Oh, <laughs> heavens to Murgatroyd. I hope your thank, reputation thank you. survives this encounter. <laughs> thank you, Deacons. This is such a privilege, oh my gosh, to be in the mother uh, womb, as it were, of the whole Paulist enterprise Thank you for all your vocations, actually. Well, thank you. And it's just a wonderful privilege to have you with us. We are going to talk, among other things, about your book, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, and the Greatest Commandment. And before we actually get started in the book, we thought it might be a good idea, because some of our listeners may not be completely familiar with Dorothy Day or Thomas Merton, and we thought it might be a good idea just to put out there real quickly, Thomas mm-hmm. Merton was an American Trappist monk, writer, theologian, mystic, poet, social activist, and scholar of comparative religion. He was ordained on May 26, 1949, into the Catholic priesthood. He was a member of the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane, which is commonly known as the Trappist Monastery. And he lived there until from 1941 until his untimely death. He wrote more than 50 books in a period of 27 years, mostly on spirituality, social justice, and pacifism, as well as scores of essays and reviews. He's probably most famous to the people who don't really jump into the heart of Thomas Merton for his autobiographical book, The Seven-Story Mountain, published in 1948. He became a keen proponent of interfaith understanding, exploring Eastern religions. He's particularly known for having pioneered dialogue with prominent Asian spiritual figures, including the Dalai Lama and writer D.T. Suzuki. Dorothy Day, again, I think most of us will know who she is, but she is a famous American Catholic. She was an American journalist, social activist, and anarchist, and I'm not sure whether or not that's relevant to anything we're doing today, but Dr. Pysier will clue us into that. She's perhaps one of the best-known political lay people among American Catholics, and she's currently being put up for sainthood. Her conversion is described in her 1952 autobiography, The Long Loneliness. She was an active journalist and described her social activism in her writings. As part of the Catholic Worker Movement, she co-founded the Catholic Worker newspaper in 1933 and served as its editor from 1933 until her death in 1980. I got these biographies out of Wikipedia. The Wikipedia pages on each of them are amazingly Good for Wikipedia. I'm happy. Yeah. One thing I like to add with Merton in terms of is the fact that the Dalai Lama said that Thomas Merton was the first person to convey to him the essence of Christianity. And with Dorothy Day, I think it's interesting that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops unanimously recommended her sainthood cause. Well, but those are great thumbnails. Thank you. Well, then that, you know, there are so many full length biographies of both of them that to sit down and talk about each of them in 35 to 45 seconds is nearly impossible. And I thought Wikipedia did do a good job. You know, the one thing that people, to put an exclamation point on this, 
have to remember is that when the Pope came to the United States of America and addressed the Congress for the first time, this is the Congress that used to meet on Christmas Day back way back when to show how much they disliked Catholics, didn't celebrate Christmas, that was a business day. When that finally happened and Francis stood in the well, he talked about these two people. Of all the Catholics, we got a handful of saints he could have gone to. We've got all kinds of stories. The Pope came here and he said, I want to talk about Merton and Day, which should give anybody enough information to say, if you don't know about these people, you might want to look into them. Not only that, but the other thing that underlines this is that you got the Archbishop, former Archbishop of Canterbury to do your forward, Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing yes. yet. I'd like yes. to hear that story. Well, but again, here's a guy who's not an American. He's not a Catholic. And he's doing the forward for a book and talking about how much he, he and he's a heavy hitter. I mean, you know, he's invited to the Vatican to give talks. And he's a very intelligent man. He knows about these two people. And and is and really the forward was wonderful. I thought, you know, usually forwards are snoozers, but this I read that forward. I said, This is really good. <laughs> how did you get well, how Bishop well, Canterbury? Well, you're jumping ahead. Dennis, can I oh let's stick a pin <laughs> in it. Stick a pin in it because we are going to talk about the Pope and we're gonna talk about Dr. Pysior's connection with that whole incident. Now, Dr. Pysior, you are a historian with a concentration in your publishing in Mexican American history. How did you come to write this book on two giants of American spirituality and ministry? And, of course, I'm actually trying to get into your wonderful epiphany story on Christmas Eve, which is detailed in your book. <laughs> well, thanks for asking that, Deacon Drew. It's kind of a long, convoluted story. It sort of began when I was, I happened to be reading The Catholic Worker one day, and there was a letter in it from a guy I'd known for years named Mike McCarthy. And I thought about how much I admired him. I had known him when we were involved in the Cesar Chavez great boycott in college. So there's a connection there that I didn't even recognize at the time. So anyway, in the 1990s, I see this letter from Mike in the Catholic Worker. I knew it was him from the context. And so I thought, wow, he had been so selfless in the Cesar Chavez Great Boycott when we were in college. And he, at that time, had introduced me to Merton and Dorothy Day. He subscribed to the Catholic Worker, and he had a copy of Merton's sign of Jonas under his arm, picketing in front of the AMP. And so that's how I got to know Dorothy Day and Merton. And then I went on to grad school in Mexican-American history, inspired by Mexican-Americans. And meanwhile, I heard through the grapevine that Mike by now had a family and he was a member of a Catholic worker community in Michigan's thumb. And I thought, wow, that's so inspiring. But then now in the 1990s, I see this letter from him and I think, wow, I just admired him so much. I should write him a letter and say, I saw your letter there. And after all these years, well, you know how it goes. I saw that letter in like March. And I didn't do anything. And finally, it's Christmas Eve. And I thought, let me, in the spirit of Christmas, write to Mike McCarthy and say, oh, I saw your letter. And I'm thinking back on how you introduced me to Dan Merton. So I did that on Christmas Eve. And later that day, I opened my cluttered closet and a piece of paper floated down. I had stuck it in one of my journals when I was in college. And it was a little disquisition on my admiration for Mike McCarthy. And I wrote it in 1970. <laughs> so I don't know if you can follow this whole convoluted <laughs> thing. So this is Christmas Eve in the 1990s. I, so that night, and this is where it begins in the book, that night I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking of people like Mike who have lived voluntary poverty. They've lived, you know, Jesus says, give your second coat, the Beatitudes. It's pretty clear how we're supposed to live as Christians. And here I am in Westchester County as a professional, blah, 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 bourgeois life. I mean, not rich, but by standards of most people in the world I am. And it's like, 
what happened here? And so I'm lying in bed in the middle of the night, Christmas Eve, thinking about this. And then I'm thinking about Dorothy Day, right? Because Mike introduced me to her. And then I'm thinking, oh, gee, she's so inspiring. Yeah, it's a little depressing. And then I thought, well, but why should I believe in this Jesus anyway? You know, the incarnation and the resurrection are kind of hard to believe. But her witness was so strong. So, but then I started, sort of, I'm still lying there in the middle of the night. And then I thought, I, I think I didn't want to have this downer thought. So instead I started playing this game. Who do I think is more inspiring? Dorothy Day or Thomas Merton, who he had introduced me to. So I'm thinking about it. Like, well, Dorothy Day, obviously social justice, living out the works of mercy. But Merton turning his back on, on all his hotshot intellectual life to enter the monastery and his great prayer life and inspiring in terms of contemplation and writing like an angel in a way that helps us understand how to have a spiritual life. And so I'm thinking, what, you know, Dorothy Day wrote about the spiritual life and she meditated. And, you know, Merton wrote about civil rights and war issues, war and peace. And then I thought, oh my gosh. They lived at the same time. I wonder if they knew each other. So I'm just still in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve. So I get up and I tiptoe downstairs to the living room. And I pull off out of the bookcase my collected letters of Thomas Merton. Now, Merton wrote to everybody. I mean, he wrote to Sufis. He wrote to psychologists, Jewish psychologists. He wrote to the author of Tropical cancer, you know, that was banned as pornographic. What letter is on the back page of his collected letters? One of his letters to Dorothy Day. So then I sit down on the couch and I open to those letters. And the first letter begins with him admiring her witness for peace. And then he says, Oh, Dorothy. I think of you and the beaten down people, the people nobody can respect. I'm not worthy to say that I love all of you. I'm not going to beat myself over the head about this. I just think for the love of God, I should say it. And for the love of God, you should pray for me. And then I found myself getting up and found myself walking into the dining room and found myself kneeling down in front of our little crush. It's Christmas Eve. We have a little cardboard crush with plastic figures, right? And so I somehow kneeling down in front of it. And then I looked up above it through the window and up above was one bright solitary star as Christmas Eve was turning into Christmas Day. That's the only time I've ever had anything like that happen, uh, really. So, so yeah. So then I went back to bed, and then I thought, well, gee, wouldn't it be exciting to write about them? I'm a historian. I teach the biography course. I'm a Catholic. I, I, you know, I could do this. So that that was the germination of it. But that was in the 90s. And I had just gotten a book contract to write a book on the history of Mexican-American mutual aid organizing movements over the last 150 years. <laughs> so I did that first. And then... How did you sleep that night, though, after having all that that epiphany, so close to epiphany, if you will? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Did that my whole and and so it actually made it easier to sleep. Well, how long did so seeds of contemplation there, right? Right. Well, not to quote Thomas Merton, book, how long did it take you then to research and write the book? If that was so, because I think the book was just published in 2018 or 2019. 2020, actually. 2020, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, my husband said it would say too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it took about 
10 years off and on because, you know, I'm teaching full time. Sure. But also because she lived and worked in New York City. So, of course, almost all her papers are in Milwaukee. <laughs> that makes right. complete sense. Merck's papers are all in, and I live in New York. Yeah. Merck's papers are mostly in Kentucky. The papers of their mutual friend, Dan Berrigan, are at Cornell. The papers of their mutual friend, Catherine Hewitt Doherty, are in Northern Ontario. <laughs> wow. So there was all of that. Plus, they just published so much. I mean, Merton was a compulsive exactly. writer. Right. As you say, 50 books. And Dorothy Day was a journalist who wrote almost, every, published almost every month for 50 years. So there was all their published, I didn't read all of their published stuff, but there was a lot of that stuff to read. The other thing was, and this was one of the most fun things, oral histories. I started early enough that I was able to interview, and some of these I did in the 90s while I was working on the other book, interview people who knew Dorothy Day, and I'd interview them about Merton and monasticism, and people who knew Merton, and I'd interview them about Dorothy Day and the work. Right. Well, your book, you could tell it's a beautifully written book. Let me just, I should have said this in the very beginning. I picked up your book in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. Told you this, I think, earlier off, off record. When I got into it, I realized how beautiful it was and how it really revealed the relationship between Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. So I dragged it out. I only read... I made myself turn it, stop reading it after three or four pages a night because I wanted it to last as long as I was going to be locked up in my house, which, uh-huh. which seemed to be interminable. I loved your book. So that's the first thing I want to tell to our listening audience. This is a book that talks about a relationship between two Catholic giants, two American giants, who I think never met, correct, Dr. Pysior? Correct. And, but they did correspond, and she published a lot of his work. So- Although the book right. is about the relationship between Day and Merton, and of course should be read as a whole, can you give your readers and our listeners a taste of that relationship? Did one influence one more than the other? For instance, I took from the book that Dorothy Day, while admiring and appreciating and loving Thomas Merton and his love of God and neighbor, felt the need to help him stay on track and not give in to the dissatisfaction with his situation for which he so often seemed to suffer. Am I getting that part right, or would you say it differently? That part is true. That's definitely true, but they influenced each other. She was crucial to him, no no question, for the reasons you say, and for her inspiring witness, radical witness to the works of mercy that really inspired him. You know, she was walking the walk as a Catholic in the world, and the people she associated with were... Merton gave her a sort of imprimatur. I can quote a deacon here. I interviewed Deacon Tom Cornell, who just died on August 1st, who was very close to Dorothy Day. Merton made Dorothy respectable when a lot of people didn't think she was respectable. A lot of diocesan newspapers called her a communist and stuff, or things like that. And Merton was the most prominent Catholic spiritual writer in the United States. And for him, to blurb and endorse her books and say that she was the great Catholic out in the world, he gave her respectability when a lot of people were considering her an extremist. Just one other thing is that his books themselves were like manna to Catholic workers. They really, I mean, many people drew spiritual inspiration from his books, but certainly Dorothy Day and and, and the workers really did. And the fact that he would publish in their newspaper was great. You talked about how Americans and some of the, a lot of the dioceses in the country thought of her and talked about her. She was indeed considered radical to a lot of people. But I think also, and please help us out here, she was thoroughly Catholic and obedient to the hierarchy, correct? Correct. She was an obedient daughter of the church that sometimes gets lost by people on both sides of the political divide. Sure. (laughs) For different reasons. Yeah. For one thing, she would point out the radical means going to the root. The early church, the basic, most fundamental teachings of what it means to be Catholic. And she was trying to live them out. So there was no inconsistency there. When she was being having radical critique of 
unjust economic systems. She was doing it because she was a Catholic. When she was decrying militarism, she was doing it because she was a Catholic and she could quote all the way back in the church. So that was central. Also, she was grateful to be Catholic. She went to Mass every day with a feeling of gratitude for the Eucharist, for the saints, so that even if the homily scandalized her because it was, say, lauding the military, she was still grateful to be there and to receive communion. So that was mainly, I would say, how she was a radical daughter of the church. She pushed the church on peace issues to try and get it to be more open and even endorsing pacifism to question the just war theory didn't happen in her lifetime. But if you read subsequently, some of John Paul II, but particularly Francis, he comes very close to condemning all war today. By the way, all of this is also true of Merton. Merton was a faithful son of the church. Right. Merton also wanted them. It, it was Merton and Day together who were among the most important in pushing in pushing in, in, in helping influence the Vatican Council of the mid-1960s to make it clear that you could be a pacifist and be a Catholic. That had not been clear before that. It was not ever said you couldn't be, but now it was said you could be. And that was just parenthetically, that was extremely important because in 1965, the Vietnam War gets Americanized. And, you know, pretty soon you got 500,000 troops in South Vietnam. And so many Catholic young men who thought World War II was moral, justified, and it helped that the Catholic Church was stronger on questioning war itself. Now, in terms of some teachings, in terms of sex and gender teachings, she and Merton rarely wrote about those. Right. A rare. She wrote about it a little bit more because she had to. I think Merton was glad he wasn't a diocesan priest because he didn't have to deal with those kinds of issues. But right. frankly, but mm-hmm. she was a public figure. And so like when there would be statements, she would respond in newspaper a few times. Neither one opposed the church's teaching on abortion. The way she explained it was her concern that Historically, poor and particularly minority poor women had been railroaded into sterilization and so forth in the interests of efficiency. And to the extent that abortion could be efficient, cost-cutting for medical and social programs instead of medical and social programs, that was her main criticism of it. In terms of gender issues, neither one to my knowledge, wrote, published anything on gender orientation issues. Although Merton died before Stonewall and Dorothy Day was an old woman at that point, but they didn't question church teaching. But what they emphasized in their, when they, the only times they mentioned it were in private correspondence and in their journals. And their emphasis was on love. Their emphasis was on Everyone is a child of God, but most particularly people who are being ostracized, who are being vilified right. and deserve our love. And we are lucky if we receive their love. I want to ask you now some kind of personal questions in a way. So they both predated the, what I'm going to call the scandal in our church, the sex abuse scandal in our church. There are other issues that are also polarizing our church. We don't have to go into those. I'm not asking you to talk about those. But knowing that they exist and knowing that there are so many flashpoints now, I think that you're still in the church. Why do you stay? The reason we ask that question is because that's part of the audience that we're trying to attract and target, the people who are thinking of leaving or the, th- or the people who are thinking of coming in, the people on the margins, the people who don't feel loved. Why should we as Catholics stay? Yeah. I actually have a paragraph or two in the book on 
what, you know, how would they maybe have responded and I, to the sex abuse scandal? And I can't remember exactly, but it was like Merton would have found the words to capture the scandal of this scandal better than anybody. And Dorothy Day would have spent a lot of time in front of the Blessed Sacrament and also opening Catholic worker houses to people who were hurt. Why do I stay? On one level, it's communion. I think of Dorothy Day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Right. The sacrament of the bread of life is central. And communion in a couple other ways. Communion in the sense of the communities in the church. I draw so much inspiration from the Catholic worker. Houses of hospitality, over 200 in the U.S. and beyond, people living in radical solidarity with the poor and bearing witness to injustice. And the communities of monasteries, right? Right. All dotted all over the landscape where we can go. They believe in hospitality, too, and you can go and go on retreat. Or you can just go and walk in the grounds, right? And we know that their vocation is God and us. They pray for us. So, so that's the second way of communion in connection with the many grassroots, if you will, Catholic communities that inspire me. And then the, another way I'm inspired by communion is the community of the saints. As Dorothy Day once said to a Catholic peace activist who was really disillusioned with the hierarchy, and she said, I don't put much faith in the bishops and cardinals. It's the saints throughout the ages that carry us along. <laughs> right. You know, she was a loyal daughter, but that doesn't mean that she didn't turn to the saints most of the time, you know? And I think of the most popular saint, Francisci, and how, you know, here he is in the Middle Ages, and he's talking about care for creation and solidarity with the poor and peace and who do we remember from that time? We don't remember who his bishop was, right? So right. I take heart. I take heart from that. I also take heart from the way they taught me to respond to the hierarchy when I disagree with it, which is they both said to friends of theirs who were justifiably depressed and outraged by the latest thing that the hierarchy did, something the hierarchy did. And they would say, God writes straight with crooked lines. You want to respond with integrity. You want to be clear on how you stand. You want to use your conscience. But you want to operate out of faith. Faith mm. in the fact that the whole thing's not going to fall apart. The faith that, that God writes straight with crooked lines, that what we're mainly called to do is pray and love, including very much pray for the hierarchy and love the hierarchy, and always remember we're not God. Dorothy Day and Merton had, they shared a fear of sanctimony. They knew that sanctimony is the occupational hazard of people who are trying to be good or holy. I'm trying to be holy. And so it's just a temptation. He's not trying to be holy. Right. No, it's just, it's an occupational hazard, no matter where you are philosophically in the church. So that's the other thing that helped me. And related, I guess, is that in a way, maybe the question is backward. Why do I stay in the church? The church being a gift, the church being mystical and beyond words. The church certainly not founded by me or centered around me. <laughs> so, and then finally, the church, the church mystical, beyond words. Right. 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 So are you hopeful for the future of our church? I seem to remember an earlier iteration of this question being, are you optimistic? I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. Well, maybe I rewrote it because you said you weren't optimistic. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, hope is, what is the thing? Is it St. Paul? Yeah, That's faith. I bet Dennis can quote it. Faith is the hope of things unseen, I think. Okay. Yeah, you know. And there have also been other horrible times in the church. And somehow 
here, I'm actually going to poke, 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 poke Ben in a TV show. He once said, at least the thing can't be, t- cannot be totally ruined. <laughs> well, so let me bring us back to the beginning because I know I asked my, my friend and colleague here, Dennis, to put a pin in it. So let me bring it back because it really takes us back to your book in a way, but it, it, and it takes us back to the importance of these two giants, Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. When the Pope made his historic speech on September 24th, 2015, he, as Dennis said, he mentioned both Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. Your book kind of reveals that you were maybe a little bit in the loop of that. Can you explain a little bit how that happened? Yeah, well, um, okay, what happened was that Cardinal Timothy Dolan, Archbishop of New York, recommended to Pope Francis that he mentioned Dorothy Day and Merton. And Cardinal Dolan got that idea of Dorothy Day and Merton from me because a few years earlier, he had given the graduation speech at my college, Manhattan College. And when I heard that he was going to be giving the graduation speech at my college, I wrote him a letter and said, I I see you admire Dorothy Day and Merton. Could you perhaps talk about them in the graduation speech. And he, he framed the speech around Dorothy Day and Merton and the call to the, for these students uh, in, in the future. And then a few years later, he recommended them, that he recommended to Pope Francis that he spotlight Day and Merton. So indirectly, the, my research, I think, influenced that. Now, there's a little ironic subplot of why I brought it up in the first place, which I talk about in the book. Right. And it's all, as Dorothy Dan Merton used to say, with regard to the hierarchy, God writes straight lines. Right. So no, it's a fascinating story in your book. And, it's, and I just want to say, I think here we go again with our Deacon's Pod bringing on somebody who influenced what was said in Congress, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Julie Piseur. Before we give you the last words, Doctor, I turn to my colleagues, Tom and Dennis, and ask them if they have any questions or, or thoughts or any things that they want to share with us and with you, with Tom. Yeah, I'll chime in, Doctor. Yeah, I think I, I was interested in, I think, in part of the book where Merton endorses Dorothy's book, Loaves and Fishes, <laughs> and he recommended, like, every Catholic should read that. And uh, why they should read it is because it destroys the myth that uh, we've solved the poverty in this country. And then Dorothy goes on to refer to the fact that it's not just a uh, social problem, it's a spiritual problem. Oh, now, you, again, mean, when, just me, you mean Merton? Uh, Merton, yes. But then Dorothy said it's not just a, I think it says, it was more than a sociological problem, she said. It was a religious mystery. That whole idea that we, we believe we solved the hunger in this country. And she brought it into the spiritual realm. Is that, do you think that, is one of the reasons why she was making too many demands on the Catholics in the pews. And uh, again, here's some of the pushback, not only the anti-war at that time, but now you're demanding that we get involved to really solve the hunger and the sociological, the disenfranchised people problem. Oh, that's such a good point, Deacon Tom. Yeah, the idea that the, the structural reasons people are poor are also sins. Yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. weren't ready to hear that. Yeah, we're the contributing factor. Well, it's not God's abundance. We know God has enough. We just don't distribute it right. We don't you know, look not, at that. It, it occurs to me it's not even just about the structural thing, because that's sufficiently abstract to not upset a lot of people. But both Merton and Day dealt in reality. And they would not, whether it was sanctimonious, which is unreality, role-playing, being an empty suit, being a company man, whatever you want to put on it, both of them resisted that mightily and mm-hmm. it upset all the people that was their stock and trade. I mean, one, yeah. I think the reason these people are so attractive to the people they're attractive to and repellent to the people they're repellent to is they were the real deal. They were authentic. <laughs> and whether it was the radical inner journey of Merton or the radical outer journey of Day, that's the, both the yin and the yang of the gospel. They both insisted that Catholicism is about something real. And then 
I would say that the mass of people were Catholics, faithful Catholics, by the definitions offered by the Church in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, you know, go to Mass on Sunday and all that stuff, that, you know, they very much compartmentalized their religion and often confused it with their politics. So all this was fine. You know, Merton was wonderful. He could, he could even imprimata Dorothy Day until he started talking to the Berrigans and saying, you know, we got to keep napalming children. We got, well, then, Ber- then Merton became persona non grata as well as Dorothy. He had that cachet with these diocesan and newspapers when he was just doing his spiritual books. Once he said, but, you know, what about this? Like what Day was saying, well, they didn't like him either. In fact, I find it fascinating, and I'd like to get your opinion on this as a historian, that Dorothy Day is up for sainthood. The communist, the anarchist, the, oh, you know, this crazy laywoman, right? Merton is not. <laughs> Merton, in fact, when the American bishops were going to do, you know, you have the catechism of the Catholic Church that a lot of people are familiar with. Well, the next step, and I don't know what happened to this, but the next step is that every conference takes that material and develops a local version of it, you know, like suitable for their culture. And so when the American bishops did that, and again, I don't even remember if it ever came out or what happened to it, but they were talking about using examples of American Catholics as various things, you know, as icons of various things in the faith, and they flat out rejected Merton when he was opposed. Like, not even for prayer, nothing. No, Thomas Merton is not going to be in our catechism. So I find it interesting, because you would have thought that, well, Day would be the one who would not make it to canonization, and the monk is the one. So I I just find them authentic and challenging to all people, lay and clerical, who like a nice compartmentalized ritual Catholicism where, you know, I don't know, I can be a slumlord, I can do what I want to do, you know, as long as I... I keep the sexual rules and I go to Mass on Sunday, I'm good. So I'd like, uh, what do you think about that, that the whole, their authenticity and their refusing to compartmentalize their faith and the challenge that made to hierarchy and laity? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, Deacon Dennis. I, of course, do talk about that. That's a big part of the book, that transformation you talk about with Merton. I do cite that example of the catechisms, and I didn't have a chance to bring it up, so thank you for bringing it up. I think it's one of the things that, one of the other things that bound them to each other. When people were misunderstanding them, they understood each other and helped each other in some of these dark times. But regarding the trajectories, that's just, you know, the ways of life are not always the ways we think they're going to go. I think they would say about who's up and who's down. I have a whole piece about God writing straight with crooked lines, and I, I quoted Day and Merton, and it was about the leadership conference of women religious being investigated. And the conventional wisdom, you would think either the nuns are going to quit the church or they're going to be totally silenced. Well, neither thing happened, and eventually we got a pope that invited the leadership to the Vatican. You just don't necessarily know. You have people who founded religious orders who were excommunicated and then canonized, right? So we only know up to a point. So Holy Spirit kind of thing, huh? Yeah. Good point. A Good re- way to put it. A reason for hope, if not optimism. <laughs> optimism <laughs> is crazy. I don't see anything but hope. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, that's what I'm hanging my hat on. That's great. But they were so authentic, which again is, you know, as Tom and I have often talked about, authenticity is important. And once you can fake that, you know, you got it made. But that's what people respond to. People may not have the depth to understand these people from either side of the political spectrum, because, you know, Joan Baez was telling Merton, stop wasting your time in this monastery. Let's come out and be like Dorothy Day. And, you know, but Dorothy Day said, no, you stay there. You made a commitment. This is important. But they both had, see, they both had the yin and the yang. One was had more emphasis than the other. But there is no church, there is no discipleship without a deep spiritual life, as well as one that will get off the couch and make it mean something by action. You know, the founder of the Paulists, you know, I'm often amazed that some of the founders of these very active institutes, you know, like Father Hecker, the founder of the Paulists, 
you know, a missionary organization full of zeal, wanting to do new things, full of ideas, blah, blah, blah. He would, the man was a mystic, as was St. Ignatius Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. I mean, there, you have to have both, which wherever the emphasis is, and monks have to do stuff. They can't just pray all day. They can't just, you know, I mean, St. Benedict changed the world. You know, you're talking about, we know who Francis was, but we don't know who the Pope was at that time. Well, you know, St. Benedict historically, and what he set in motion made Europe. A lot of those cities started off as monasteries in the middle of nowhere throughout Europe. I mean, and and everything else, it's just amazing what this guy did, whose emphasis was on a life of prayer, what the practical effect of that was just historically. So you need both of these things. And I just find it interesting that we see this played out over and over again. And you have people on both extremes who cannot see the other side or the necessity that, no, you need the yin and the yang. You need the contemplation and the action. So, you know. And I think just seeing these two personalities, giant personalities, it really, I couldn't help but think of the word soulmates. They really, and, and how it's used today in such an almost trivial way. But when you see it here, you, you get the real deal. These people balance each other. They were confidants. They were prayerful and, and just supportive of each other in ways that are at, that are admirable. Doctor, could you say something about the, they both kept journals and this is back to the authenticity and the soulmate thing. They both kept journals, which are available now to read raw, what Merton was writing about and wrestling with at the time or day or whoever. And it's very messy. It's very human. This is not cookie cutter, plastic saints, hagiography. Oh, you know, the uh, perfect from the day they were born. These are people you can identify with. And half the time you're reading stuff, you're saying, well, geez, I'm better than this guy. You know what I mean? Like, really? That's what you're on that. But it's just a real insight into how the Holy Spirit makes saints and what he makes them with. And, you know, there's even hope for a knucklehead like me, you know, I mean, uh, can you say something about the even, journals and what we know now from about these people? Yeah, it really shows their human side because journals, you often write in the journal because of something that you're wrestling with. And boy, they really wrestled with stuff, especially Merton, but both of them. And then when a spiritual insight comes through in the journal, it's really powerful, I think, because it's just impetuous. It's just, it just happens to come to them and they have to write about it. So yeah, it was like a, an internal, I found the two journals are like the spine of their internal minds and spirits and then the letters are like the bones of the body and you know connecting with each other so they were both great yeah it's like you see how the sausage of sanctity is actually made it's like they talk about you don't want to see them make the sausage and sometimes you are you get impatient with them as you're reading the journals but it's like wow this is how it's actually done what before it gets cleaned up this is what really happens mm -hmm. and it's just mm -hmm. It's just fascinating, which brings me back, because this was mentioned by the former Archbishop of Canterbury. How did you get Rowan Williams to do your forward <laughs> and, and oh, talk no. about why he would know who these two Amer mid-20th century Americans, Catholics, were? Yeah, well, I got the idea because he gave the key, Rowan Williams, the you know, former head of the Worldwide Anglican Communion, uh, gave the keynote at the big anniversary Merton conference in, in at his monastery in Kentucky. So I knew he liked Merton. And then I looked him up on Google, Rowan Williams and Dorothy Day, and saw he had given a talk about her and admired her enormously. And then, it's I'm lucky I live in the New York area, he was giving a talk at Fordham Lincoln Center. So I went, and there was a reception afterwards, and he was so generous, he was hanging around at the reception letting people come up and chat with him. So I went up to him and said, Your Grace, I'm writing a book on Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. He said, You are? Do you know the Dorothy Day of Paris? I didn't know the Dorothy Day of Paris, but now I do. Uh, Madeleine Debray. And then I said, Would you possibly consider writing an endorsement for the book? And he said, Yes. <laughs> Just like that. Yes. So then I, when I wrote to him about that, I thought, he said that so easily. Let me ask if he'd write the foreword. <laughs> His assistant wrote back, I don't know, we're very busy. But I wrote to him and said, as you read through the material, I'm guessing that you'll 
ideas will come to you almost automatically. And so next thing I knew, there was a, oh, you know, a few months later, there was an email with the subject line forward and the forward was attached. It, it also happened to be on the day my mother died. And so I wrote to him that, you know, I felt like she was pulling for me. <laughs> wow. There's a lot of the Holy Spirit in the beginning and the ending of this book. <laughs> there really is. I have one last question, Doctor. Who, if anyone, do you see as the Dorothy Day or the Thomas Burton of today? Is there anybody out there leading that way, being that, giving us that prophetic voice? Wow. I have thought about it, but not systematically. One person off the top of my head in terms of Dorothy Day I think of is Reverend Barber, who's not Catholic, but the head of the Poor People's Campaign right. to me. Right. Like a re- he's the Martin Luther King of our day. Yeah, he's, he's our day. very strong. But he, I'm not sure. I'm sorry? Would you think Richard Rohr, maybe? Try th- Richard Rohr is the contemplation and action person. But I think usually prophetic people come from not the logical inheritor thing. Also, Richard Rohr is getting old. So I'm thinking it's somebody for our age, you know, maybe one of the young people in the climate movement or something, you know, I don't know. And also being a historian, we tend to be looking <laughs> right, at the past. Right. So you deacons who are out there in the parishes and out there with your ear to the ground, when you get ideas, I'll, I really, I'll be glad to hear who you think. Well, all right. So we've come, I think, to the end of our time. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with or share with us? Dr. Paisura, I tell you, this has been a fascinating and wonderful conversation and a lot of and a good spiritual conversation. We thank you. But tell us, leave us with whatever you want to say. Oh, thank you. What I'd like to do is read the conclusion of the book. With humanity itself at risk, we will not be saved by starry-eyed optimism or clever cynicism. We will not even be saved by calculating the effects of our good deeds. Everything is compassion, Merton reflected on beholding the Palanarua Buddhas in Sri Lanka. This love, this compassion, shown through the last circular letter he wrote to his friends. He wrote this letter, one letter to a bunch of close friends, including Dorothy Day, before he headed out on that fateful Asian journey. He wrote to them, I shall continue to feel bound to all of you in silence and prayer. Our real journey in life is interior. It is a matter of growth, deepening, and of an ever greater surrender to the creative action of love and grace in our hearts. Never was it more necessary for us to respond to that action of love and grace in our hearts. Or, as Dorothy Day put it, the final word is love. In this famous postscript to her autobiography, she observed, We cannot love God unless we love each other. And to love, we must know each other. We know him in the breaking of bread. And we know each other in the breaking of bread. Even with a crust where there is companionship. We have all known the long loneliness and we know that love comes with community. Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day call us to bear witness to love as embodied in the divine and in that spark of the divine in every person, but especially present in the destitute, the ostracized, the attacked, whether by hatred or by war. Today, as we face crises seemingly unprecedented in their magnitude, may we respond with a bravery rooted in love, despite everything and because everything is at stake. Thank you, Dr. Picior. Very nice. Yes, indeed. Yeah.
Hey, Drew, ask me your favorite question, our favorite question about why I stay in the church. Go ahead and ask me. <laughs> Dennis, why do you stay in the church? Because of people like Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, and Dr. Julie Piscior. That's why I'm oh, still here. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Good answer. Sincere. You lift us up. You make us look good. Yeah. Not easy. Ask our wives. They'll tell you. It's a full-time <laughs> job. Thank you. Okay. I think we're done. I did write a prayer because we had talked about doing a prayer. And we can put it in or we can take it out depending on how much time we have. But I'd, since I wrote it, I'd like to read it. Yeah, do that. We ask you, loving and gentle God, to instill in our hearts through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the love that knows no conditions, the peace that knows no limits, the strength to be weak so Jesus can rest in us, and the wisdom to know when to be silent. Let us take as our models the hearts of Dorothy and Tom, who have never ceased in their struggle to find God's presence in the world, in their neighbors, and in their own hearts. In Christ, your Son, who lives with you in the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Nice. Amen. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You, you wrote that? Yep, yep. It must have won. He went to Deacon School. I wow. Can tell. No, uh, you guys, guys, that brought tears to my eyes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, now if we can embrace that. And I don't have a sensitive bone in my body. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.